Welcome, dear listeners, to Dreams of the Past, a supernatural podcast, which you will you appreciate the title because it does two very clever things. One, it tells you exactly what it is. It's a supernatural podcast. And two, it rhymes. So there you go. Two for one. In case anyone is picturing Jensen Ackles strumming a guitar, <laughs> air guitar, doesn't know why. <laughs> It's also a line from Eye of the Tiger. Oh, yes, yes. And if you haven't seen Yellow Fever, I don't know what you've done to get here, but I apologize profusely because you probably have better things to do with your life than listen to us talk about something you haven't seen. (laughs) Um, So Dreams of the Past is a supernatural podcast, as we very cleverly put in the title. And it is basically a uh, literary analysis. You'd agree with the term literary analysis? Yeah, I would say literary as well as cultural. Yeah, a literary analysis of the, like, the historical, cultural, and literary value of uh, Supernatural, specifically seasons one through five, because those are the seasons that we've seen and enjoyed, and we sort of gave up after that. <laughs> Not to say that we won't necessarily be talking about later seasons, and not to say that the later seasons aren't good, it's just that uh, we had to limit the podcast somehow, and doing the first five seasons seemed like the most reasonable way to go about that. I'm Ray. I grew up in Wyoming with my friend Marit, who's also on the podcast, Uh, and we watched Supernatural a bunch together when we were growing up. And uh, I moved to Pacific Northwest, which incidentally is where Supernatural is filmed, which is endlessly hilarious for me because every time they have an episode that's supposed to be somewhere else other than the Pacific Northwest, it just looks like the Pacific Northwest. Um, And I um, don't have that much background in letter analysis, but I'm, I'm here to like sort of be the the podcast person because I listen to a lot of podcasts. Anyway, that's me. Hi, I'm Marit, uh, also called Mish, or Mission, as most of you probably know me if we interact on Tumblr or Twitter. Uh, I'm pretty heavily involved in a lot of different fandoms online, but Supernatural was really one of the big fandoms for me growing up. Um, Ray and I grew up together here in Wyoming, where I still live. I am very interested in the literary analysis side of fandom. Um, As those of you who have interacted with me in Dusout fandom probably already are familiar with. So I'm pretty excited for this podcast. I think Ray is downplaying her (laughs) ability to do uh, literary and historiographical analysis. I have some thoughts, but they might not just be quite up to the level of academic snuff as you. Oh, I see. Yeah. I, got, I got a chemistry major. I'm not so sure about all this. <laughs> I'm not exactly an English major either. Ah, that's fair. That's fair. Anthropology. It's closer. <laughs> I think. I presume. I don't actually know. <laughs> uh, maybe the, the history. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the history. The history double major. That's, that's where it'll get you. Um, also, I should interject real quick before we forget. We're drawing on five episodes for, five episodes of Supernatural for this episode of the podcast, uh, which is season one, episode one, the pilot. Season one, episode four, Phantom Traveler. 
season one, episode 15, which is Hell House. Season one, episode 17, which is The Benders. And season two, episode seven, which is The Usual Suspects. We may reference some other episodes at points throughout, um, but those are the episodes we specifically rewatched in preparation for this. For this episode, which is, uh, which the theme of this episode is going to be uh, the cultural context and sort of the, of Supernatural, the, uh, the history and the like, the culture of the early 2000s and some of the things that inspired Supernatural and some of the like, uh, the overall societal themes it was dealing with. Yeah, so we're really excited to take a look at Supernatural um, and think about Supernatural as a show that really did have a strong impact on a lot of people and um, the cultures of the time, as well as uh, thinking about Supernatural, not just as some ambiguous fandom thing, but as a pretty significant cultural phenomenon and a body of literature. I think it's also, it's it's really easy because it's, uh, it's at its 14th season as we record this. Reportedly, it's final season, but we've heard that one before. Um, it's really easy seeing where the, I was really surprised re-watching some of the earlier episodes um, and comparing it with even like season eight, which is really midway through the show at this point, um, and just how much of a difference it really does um, have between the earlier seasons and the later seasons and how much it evolves. And now I feel like it's really interesting to me because everybody's basically heard of Supernatural, I feel like. And it's easy to forget the, um, the impact it had, especially on teenage female viewers um, when it was first coming out and how um, it really was born out of the, uh, the early 2000s and the cultural moment at the time. And it really interacts with its fans in a way that I don't think I've ever seen any show do in a, like, a really interesting way. It just has a great dialogue with it. Well, not a great dialogue, but it has a dialogue with its fans, which I don't know very many shows that have a dialogue. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's really easy to, like, look back after 14 seasons and be like, oh, yeah, that show. But uh, it's it's hard to remember what it felt like when it was coming out. And also adding on to that, like, um, Supernatural is, uh, as in my awareness of things, is actually pretty unique in the fact that it is really the um, first horror TV show that I feel like, certainly the first I've ever watched, but I think one of the first really on the air. I mean, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer obviously came before that, um, I've never actually seen it, so I don't know how, like, how much of a horror show it really is. Um, I would say that Buffy draws pretty heavily on horror, uh, in a, in a slightly different way than Supernatural. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, um, you know, on re-watching the pilot episode, it really struck me, Supernatural really seemed to be trying to position itself as a spiritual successor to Buffy. Um, you know, it, it was working really hard to appeal to a college-aged audience who presumably would have watched Buffy in high school. Um, 
it draws on a lot of the same ideas and themes about um, youth and adulthood and heroism. Um, you know, I, Sam in particular uh, seems to be an echo of Buffy in an interesting way, right down to the fact that his girlfriend kind of looks like Buffy. <laughs> I, I, seeing as I've never seen Buffy, I did not notice that parallel. <laughs> So to kind of dive in to that um, and to touch on um, Buffy very slightly again, uh, I do think, you may not agree, but it feels to me that early season Supernatural and the pilot in particular was really trying to position itself as appealing to a college-aged audience. Um, yeah, I, I don't it necessarily succeeded. <laughs> well, given the fact that, well, I know that I was looking at the demographics for this and like the first season really like hit it off with like uh, males 18 to 29 or something like that. But I, excuse me, I know for a fact that later seasons, they were all teenage girls that were like in the demographics of the show. And I've never been to a, to a supernatural convention but my understanding is that it's primarily teenage girls at the, at the Supernatural conventions. And yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that Supernatural ended up appealing to a different audience than it was initially targeting. Um, but I do think, um, it seems to me, just watching the show, um, it seemed to be initially positioning itself as appealing to a college age demographic, in particular, the audience that had been watching Buffy up until very recently. Yeah, so I think that uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is obviously a huge influence. Um, there are also some other cultural influences that I definitely saw, like Supernatural tries really hard to, especially in the early seasons, to be a, uh, a horror show. And like, in particular, um, well, this is a really specific example, but like when I was watching um, The Benders, the house for the Bender family looks a lot like the house in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original. And then there are also a lot of other very clear references to the horror genre, as well as some other really popular genres at the time, which, uh, uh, well, I don't know how popular horror was at the time, but it's okay. Um, <laughs> like uh, the police procedural, which you see in The Usual Suspects, as well as like, the, the parody power of Supernatural is really, really strong, and they draw very clearly on a lot of the influences um, from around them. And because I would classify Supernatural as a horror show specifically, um, I think it's fair to sort of examine it through a horror uh, literary analysis lens. And my understanding of the way that people usually analyze horror is that Horror is an expression of societal uh, anxieties and also things that people tend to repress about either themselves or are repressed in society. So um, looking at the first seasons of Supernatural, particularly when they're trying to be a horror, uh, horror show, they have to draw a lot on the like social mores of the time in order to really get that horror element. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think, you know, another big preoccupation of horror as a genre is liminal spaces. Um, so sort of the space between two things. Um, 
The way it was explained to me, a good way to visualize liminal space is like a doorway. Um, so on one side you have uh, the socially acceptable or society, and on the other side you have the not socially acceptable um, or the other or the lack of society. And liminal space is sort of standing in the doorway between those two things. Which I think is really interesting because um, the other as a concept and as a re re wait, are you drinking out of a Winchester mug? <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> nerd. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, back on topic. Um, in horror, the concept of others or the others um, is a very, very important concept. Um, and it ties into what you were saying about liminal spaces where um, the liminal space separates the other from like within society and the others other is very very well defined and very clear and supernatural and that's something that they're consistently like it's so consistent in all of the episodes that it's actually pretty rare for them to have moral discussions about like killing other they're always killing werewolves or ghosts or what have you, or exercising demons. And there are only a couple of episodes that I remember, and I would have to go through this more carefully, but there are very few episodes where they actually examine the morality of killing monsters and demons and that sort of thing. That's just sort of a given for them. And so Supernatural, in its most fundamental level, is really based on this concept of other. And Dean and Sam, as horror heroes and as American tragic heroes, really occupy that liminal space between other and society because they are not really of society. Like Sam in the first episode has to be forced to leave society with the killing of Jess in order to occupy the same space as Dean in order to go hunt these monsters. And they are constantly pushed back towards that fringe of society in order to accomplish their job. There are several instances where they were like, in ex like not explicitly but like there were many places where they could have um made the existence of the supernatural much much more uh on the public consciousness and they don't ever they always keep it a secret and that's one of the things that it's like in the what rewatch really bothered me is that there's never even a question they never even discuss the fact that they maybe should tell people or maybe try and get people to realize that there are supernatural things going on. Like at the individual level, they certainly do. Like you see this with the cops and the usual suspects or um, the cops in the vendors, but only at the individual level, they never try to change anything at the societal level. And the like lack of questioning that really stuck out to me on my rewatch. I would say, actually, to me, the usual suspects, one of the things that really struck me is um, Dean's confession. Um, so he knows that he needs to provide some sort of distraction so Sam can escape, right? But the way he chooses to, that, to provide that distraction was really telling for me. He doesn't, without assuming, that he'll be believed. He consciously chooses to relay the truth about the supernatural to as many people as possible, to as large of an audience as possible. Um, but yeah, I think you can also see that it was sort of 
like the way he's sort of sarcastic, almost bitter, um, confrontational, he expects not to be believed. Yeah, and that's like the only time they ever really talk about it is in the terms of mental illness. Like whenever they talk about revealing the supernatural to other people, unless it's on an individual basis in which all bets are off, but to like a group of people, it's always in the context of mental illness. Like you, like they specifically say, no, you can't tell people, they'll think you're crazy. And in Sam Interrupted, when they get checked into the mental hospital, that's exactly like Dean tells the truth. It's an interesting dichotomy for a show that is about supernatural creatures to hold itself to because uh, it, as the viewer, you're asked to step into this world where the supernatural is possible and in fact mundane almost and is just the like elements of, of any other part of life. But um, there's still this, it's, it's welcoming you into this space where you're special and you're one of the heroes and you're one of the special hunters that know about the supernatural. Uh, and you get to have this experience of, of being in the know and being one of the hunters with the cast as opposed to one of the ignorant innocents. Um, like really one of the reasons that the tension of the show works so well is because it's a secret. And there's this tension that I think um, Hell House actually does a lot to illustrate between um, knowledge and truth. Um, so like one of the big preoccupations of that episode um, is what is the truth? Um, and this idea that truth can be fluid, truth is an idea or a concept or a philosophy that can change. Um, and so even while the ghost facers, who are in many ways audience stand-ins, are um, saying, and this is a quote, we have an obligation to the truth. Dean and Sam are asking themselves, how are we supposed to kill an idea? Um, and that's really the tension between them. Um, Dean and Sam, as comparative authority figures in this arena, um, are trying to suppress the truth, in part because partial knowledge of the supernatural is shown to be incredibly dangerous, um, while the ghost facers are trying to expose the truth. Um, and they're, they're shown in many ways to be in the wrong. I feel like this is really one of the episodes that deals with this idea of um, should the supernatural be exposed to the world in a really succinct way. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I think it's interesting to me um, that the takeaway is no, and not no because people wouldn't believe it or no because Dean and Sam want to be special, or... No, it's no because it's dangerous. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's this idea that belief is dangerous, and partial knowledge is dangerous, and potentially even complete knowledge without the skill set to back it up is dangerous. It's interesting because... Um... I found a really interesting parallel between the ghost facers and the vendors. 
which I, I can see your face. You're like, what? I wonder where she's going with this one. Um, because they both are parodies. Well, they're both, they're both foils for the Winchesters. Um, because the, the ghost facers um, in Hell House are, bas- I mean, in all of the, like, the overall details, the exact same as the Winchesters. They're people who chase the supernatural. They're even a pair of uh, male people. They are going after it for reasons of their own. And they also, the ghost facers seem pretty far removed from mainstream culture, just as the way that um, the Winchesters are. There's a real emphasis on the, the, the nerdiness of uh, the ghost facers, like they reference, like one of them when they're scared, they're like "Holy Lord of the Rings." Um, they reference a lot of nerdy cult subculture. Um, they reference pot, which I found really interesting, um, and being high, and they reference a lot of things that just put them outside of the mainstream culture, but in a way that's really contrasted with the Winchesters, where Sam is has the sort of bona fide intellectualism of Stanford, which I have thoughts about sending him to Stanford as opposed to one of the other. Well, Stanford isn't an Ivy, but it's Ivy League, and sending him to Stanford is a very specific choice, and I have a whole rant about this. <laughs> um, but um, it's really interesting to compare the sort of the nerdiness of, of the ghost facers, where they are clearly seen as, they're, they're very clearly compared with the Winchesters and found lacking. They're not as physically strong. They're not as tall, though it's hard to find actors as tall as Jensen Ackles and Jared Padalecki, which we see with the addition of Misha Collins, where he just looks tiny next to them. Um, uh, And there are so many other things that make, that sort of undermine the masculinity specifically of the ghost facers in a way that's really interesting and really highlights the masculinity of the Winchesters um, in contrast. And, and this is also tied in with the benders, where the benders are sort of the opposite of the ghost facers, but they still provide a foil, where they are uh, very, very physical, and um, they are very, very rural in the way that the Winchesters are definitely coded as rural in a lot of ways, but the the benders are coded as like the weird type of rural, uh, just as the way that the ghost facers are, are coded as the weird type of nerdy, not okay kind of nerdy, as opposed to Sam's more like professional intellectualism and Dean's more practical intellectualism with the creation of the EMF meter from a Walkman and so on and so forth. And so they both provide these really interesting bookends to the Winchesters where it's really clear the Winchesters are supposed to be this like rural, masculine, smart, but not too smart, uh, capable, but not too violent like they walk this really interesting tightrope between these two stereotypes um and it's just really interesting that um to compare them between the ghost facers on one end and the vendors on the other yeah yeah and i think um you know masculinity is definitely one of the big preoccupations of the show <laughs> yeah as a series <laughs> like that's, that's <laughs> that keeps going past season five let me tell you <laughs> Um, but I think, you know, later seasons and fandom dialogue about Supernatural, um, really emphasizes the idea that Supernatural is a hyper-masculine show. Um, and I think it's really interesting to me on rewatching how 
Dean and Sam, in a lot of ways, don't buy into um, the cultural narrative about masculinity, in particular, uh, toxic masculinity. Um, You know, Sam is often shown as emotionally vulnerable, and Dean is often shown as incredibly empathetic. yeah, it's like the one scene in a Monster at the end of this book where they're talking to the publisher and she asks the Winchester brothers of scenes in the Winchester, like in the Supernatural books, like, when was the last time you cried like that? Referring, of course, to the times that they cried. <laughs> <laughs> right, like, um, they're perceived as these... Well, they're they're perceived as, like, emotionally vulnerable um which we're getting into sort of like more of an overall view of the series now because they have individual moments where they're extremely emotionally vulnerable but they also are like completely well sort of the like you put in your notes that there are certain parts of early season dean where he is super emotionally intelligent or Mm -hmm. early series dean has super emotionally intelligent but um they, they never seem to make any progress emotionally. They're always stuck in these, like, very emotional ruts where they are, like, they have to deal with, with the epic situation that they have to deal with. But they do ex- exhibit a lot of emotion, but never get anywhere with it. <laughs> yeah, I would say, though, like, that's something that almost seems to me to change as the series progresses. Um, So, for example, throughout season one and some of season two, Sam is dealing with a lot of guilt and probably post-traumatic stress from uh, having witnessed Jess dying. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would say that he actually makes some significant emotional progress on those things. Yeah, I mean, like, there's... There's an argument to be made that Sam is so much more emotionally healthy than Dean is um, until he gets to the sort of the d- demon blood drinking uh, <laughs> section of the of the first five seasons. But he like it's interesting to me because um, Dean has always stood out to me of the trifecta of John Winchester, their father, Sam and Dean. He's the only one who hasn't lost a romantic partner to the yellow-eyed demon. And that's always sort of put him in a really interesting position to me because, um, which, is per- which is the position Dean usually finds himself in, is where he's sort of a proxy for other people's emotions and other people's desires. Um, like, he was raised as a hunter to go, like, avenge his mother, which, to be fair, it is his mother. Fair enough. Um, and I, and the parallels between Sam and John are always really amusing to me because they hate each other's guts so much. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say, though, like, it really struck me on rewatching how emotionally well-adjusted Dean is when we meet him. Like, the show pretty quickly, like, tears that to shreds. I mean, yeah, sending it, like, killing Sam and then sending him to hell completely undermines any sort of, like, emotional stability he would have. Yeah, and even earlier than that, um, when John Winchester trades his life for Dean, that's really meant to me, like, Dean's emotional stability starts going out the window. But when we meet him, um, you know, Dean, 
has kind of struck a balance between having one foot in each of these two worlds. And he even confronts Sam mm-hmm. about, um, you know, he asks Sam if he's ever planning on telling Jess about, um, he, he doesn't say the supernatural, he says about the things that you've done. And when Sam says no, Dean's response is, well, that's healthy. Very sarcastic. Very I know. <laughs> I loved that exchange just because it's, um, it really, it also just highlights so many of the things that Dean does later in the series. And I don't know how much foreshadowing that is. I assume it's just a one-off line. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty telling how shocking that line was coming from Dean on rewatch. <laughs> because I was like holy crap Dean you have an emotional range that's larger than a teaspoon good job um (laughs) uh yeah it was I totally agree with you like season one Dean has got it together he um he really finds this like really comfortable balance and like yeah he's worried about his father but we see him looking so much like we both see both of the Winchester brothers in their element at the beginning of season one and episode one where Sam is seems pretty comfortable he's got a great life he's at Stanford he's doing really well he's got a girlfriend he's got friends like seems like a normal college boy and you've got Dean who's like rolls into town mysterious stranger and all but he really does he's very engaging and he's immediately somebody that like you kind of want to get to know more about this character and I think they do a really good job of showing them as like very engaging characters to begin with and there's a there's a lot of comfort in what they're doing like they are clearly shown as experts in all of this and uh, particularly, it struck me in a Phantom Traveler when he's trying to determine if the flight attendant, when they're on the flight, and he's trying to determine if the flight attendant is uh, possessed. And he, this is Dean, who is in, on a plane, and he has a flying phobia, and he's chatting up this attendant so confidently, like he's getting her to talk really naturally, and it's it just struck me as a very non-awkward conversation, and I was really impressed by his finesse and his ability to just sort of like charm his way towards what he wanted, and I think that's something we really lose in the later seasons, Dean, where he becomes very gruff and like rough around the edges and that sort of thing and the sort of the suaveness of the like first couple episodes in the first season is lost yeah yeah um and I would say we kind of get that back when we see Dean living with Lisa Braden this is Um, true and I think that that's that's really a callback to the emotional stability and intelligence he exhibits in the early seasons before everything goes to hell in a handbasket, not quite to- literally. <laughs> <laughs> he goes to hell, presumably in a handbasket. <laughs> I'm not sure how he got there. Hell <laughs> Um, yeah. So it's uh, you know, we see Dean sort of return to this person who is pretty good at talking to other people and figuring mm-hmm. out their emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also pretty good at existing in one world without having to totally reject the other. 
Oh, see, that's interesting that you say that because I feel like his, some of his emotional stabilities comes from the fact that he's completely rejected Sam's world. If Sam is the representation of sort of the normal apple pie lifestyle, I hate that term, <laughs> apple pie. If he's a representation of the apple pie, pick, white picket fence lifestyle, um, Dean has so totally rejected Sam's lifestyle. Like, yeah, he goes to Sam for help, but like, there's a clear derision that Sam has chosen the normal lifestyle over the hunter lifestyle. And it's clear that Sam is, is far removed from the hunter lifestyle. And it seems that Dean, especially when we first see him in the pilot where it's sort of the pilot is sort of from Sam's perspective. So we sort of see this veneer of normalcy um, looking in on Dean and he just represents the sort of, this mystery and this competence and this like the knowledge of this world that we're completely ignorant of. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like, I, th I honestly think that a lot of Dean's emotional competency comes from the fact that he doesn't have any conflict between his hunter life and his normal life because he just doesn't have any interest in a normal life. He's got everything he needs from his hunter life. See, I would say that's interesting to me because for me, it feels almost like the opposite. Hmm. Um, so watching Dean and Sam interact in the first episode, especially Dean uh, challenge Sam about the aspects of his life he's not dealing with. It becomes incredibly clear to me that Sam's life in the normal world isn't sustainable because his total rejection of the hunter world is a repression of a part of himself and a repression of his history that he can't not deal with. And I think to me, like the reason Dean is able to maintain a foot in both worlds is because he doesn't fully reject either one. That's interesting. I, I totally agree with what you're saying about Sam because there is a certain artificialness to his life at Stanford, which I don't know if it was intentional or they just were like, I don't know, people at Stanford go to parties, I guess. Um, but, uh, it definitely is interesting because, um, like, Dean's world, the hunter world, and the world that Sam falls into just seems so much more real than his life at Stanford. And part of this is we only glimpse a couple of seconds of his life at Stanford. And Jess is a very two-dimensional character who we never really learn anything about, even after the fact, after she dies. Like, there's not much reference back to her. They sort of just seem to forget about her. Yeah, it's just really interesting because I, I totally agree with what you're saying that Sam's life is his life at Stanford is in a lot of ways a lie to him. Um, but I think you could also interpret it as is uh, the fact that because these two men are cast in the role of heroes, um, they're always striving for that like life of normalcy and then it being denied them. And that's sort of part of the hero narrative where they like, constantly have to go and become the sacrifice for other people to sleep at night. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, but I don't know, like to me, it seems very clear that if one of the two has a shot at a semi-normal existence, it's Dean, because Dean is the one who can uh, go live with Lisa Braden and like not have to totally reject everything that came before in order to reconcile that existence. Mm -hmm. It's uh, really, yeah. 
It's um, it's interesting to me that the ghost that it, that's in the pilot, her one line is "I can never go home," uh, because mm-hmm. I feel like that's so significant for each of the Winchesters, including their father, where they are, like, especially with Sam. This is like very clearly highlighted because after they have dealt with the ghost. Um, Sam's like, no, I need to go back to California. And Dean's like, I'll take you home then. And he specifically uses the word home in that sentence. And it's clear that uh, that Sam choosing Stanford to be his home is a rejection of Dean being his home. And the concept of home as a specific concept is really one that they revisit throughout the series, but is one that's like very, very important to establish early because they're like they it's a it's a road trip horror show like they are constantly on the road the impala is their home which is like explicitly said in swan song a swan song um but uh it's just clear that like this concept of home and the fact that they can never return home because either home is destroyed or they're no longer welcome at home or they're no longer deserving of home. So for John, home is destroyed. Sam, no longer welcome. And Dean, no longer worthy. And it's, it's it goes into the like Judeo-Christian uh, like belief structure that winds its way throughout the show and is, becomes much more explicit in seasons uh, four and five, but is, is there right at the beginning where there's this sort of like Garden of Eden concept of home that they're constantly chasing. Right, and I think it's significant that um, of the two brothers, Dean is the only one who really remembers their first home mm-hmm. um, yeah. and sort of their idealized home that has been recited back to them by their father throughout their childhood, presumably. It, you know, the yeah. whole thing has Lawrence with their mom. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, it's also interesting because. I mean, yeah, Dean does remember it, but he remembers it as, like, a very small child. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, his concept of home and his mother is clearly, and his father even to a certain extent, is clearly so idealized. Whereas with Sam, he doesn't even have the, like, the basic memories. So he's able to let go of the, like, the idealized home much more easily than Dean is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's telling that, Dean is the one who's always making snide remarks about apple pie life. Uh, <laughs> he has a frame of reference for that, that Sam just doesn't. Oh, that's an interesting interpretation because I feel like at the beginning of the pilot, they've really set it up so that Dean doesn't have, like until he gets to Lisa, he really doesn't have any context for that. Like, yes, you, I, I see your point where it's like, oh, well, he, when he was a kid, but how old was he? He was like five or, he was less than six years old. So he was four years old, really? He was four years old? So him being four years old, like his memories of having a normal life would be so like insignificant compared, well, I don't know, insignificant is the right word, but they would be so much less than like his experience of his life that I really feel like the pilot sets it up as like, Dean is the hunter through and through who only knows the hunting life, whereas Sam is the one who has been protected by Dean, and he's the one who's been allowed to have this shot as a normal life. So I feel like going into the pilot, Sam's really the only one with that experience. Interesting. Interesting. Because I feel like, partially, 
this has to do with the the artificiality of that Stanford environment. Mm. It doesn't feel real to me. And like college is very different from like white picket fence, two point five kids. Mm -hmm. Like Yeah, uh, but college is more part of the normal life than hunting is. <laughs> well, true, true. Um but I think like one of the things that really strikes me um, is this sort of class element that I feel like runs through it. Um, mm-hmm. This idea that Sam is the first one in his family to go to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wants to achieve what he views as like a normal middle-class life. Mm-hmm. And in order to do so, he has to reject what his family does and what they are and even them to some extent. Um, I think it, like, it speaks pretty deeply to a narrative about people from a working class background. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's really what strikes me about that. Like, it doesn't, for me, it doesn't feel like, oh, like, Dean d- isn't immersed in the normal world in the same way. Um, though that is true, it feels more like, um, a divergence of paths where Dean is following a more traditional working class path hmm. of going straight into the workforce. No, that's a really good point. And, and clearly class is a huge issue in Supernatural, even though it's not one that's ever really explicitly addressed. And I think that your point about Sam being the first one to go to college, especially um, in contrast with the way that he and Dean were raised is a, like, a really clear point. And this, I think, goes back to um, the point I was going to make about Stanford, which is that um, Stanford is a clear choice for people who are smart but and elite, but not snobby elite. Like, he, like the show takes place all over the country. Like, he could have very easily been going to Harvard or Yale or any of those other Ivy Leagues, that, and that would have conveyed the same level of intellect. Um, and the same sort of prestige, but they chose Stanford, which is a very interesting choice because it's, it screams to me like somebody who's smart, but they don't have the like entrenched elitism of sort of the East Coast schools. So I thought that Stanford was, was a very specific choice for them to send him to, um, because it really, really speaks to sort of that that coming up from the working class and being really, really impressive and very successful um, in the upper class, but still coming from that sort of that root of the non-elite. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I didn't really make that connection, probably because I'm less familiar with Stanford and more familiar with East Coast schools. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, it seemed like a really, I mean, they could have just picked one out of random, but it's cl- like if you want to tell, if you want to write a character who's obviously smart and at a prestigious school, the obvious pick is Harvard. Everybody knows what Harvard is. Like it's it's such a convenient shorthand that they could have so easily put him in, at Harvard, but they put him at Stanford, which is equally as prestigious, I would argue, but it definitely has a very different vibe to it than Harvard does. And with that rant about Stanford, uh, I think we're going to end part one of this episode there. Uh, Part two of this episode will be uh, also released 
at the same time, so you should be able to jump right into the rest of our conversation. Um, but future episodes, we will release parts one and parts two at different times. But since this is the first episode, we decided to release both parts at once, and we hope you have a chance to listen to part two. And if you liked what you heard, uh, then please feel free to send us a message on Tumblr. Our Tumblr account is Dreams of the Past Podcast at Tumblr. Uh, on Twitter, we are Dreams Past Pod. Or you can email us. Our email address is very creatively Dreams of the Past Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, so all of those should be pretty easy for you to remember and we would be excited to hear from you rate and review if you liked what you heard because that really helps us find new listeners and get the word out about our podcast and i really appreciate you guys listening to our podcast uh, i'm nish and it was so nice spending this time with you ray and with hopefully our lovely audience <laughs> all three of them next time <laughs> 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 <laughs>